Welcome to the We Got Your Six podcast, sponsored by the 99 Legacy Fund and the West Point Class of 1999. Here we share our stories and exchange information to let each other know there's always a good enough reason to be here tomorrow. We want to remind you that you're not alone in your struggle. We got your six. Now here is your host and friend of the Class of 99, Philip Nathrum. And you got your, uh, you got your shirt on. I got my shirt on. Yeah, representing the the ninety nine trial proudly. Yeah, check that out. Well, smart water. Smart water. Yep, hydrated. Yeah, good to go. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great place to start. You know what, Chris Mayo? Thank you so much for joining us here at the We Got Your Six podcast. Uh, it, I'm really excited to talk to you. We had a great time in our um, our initial meeting. You know, we got connected and we've been planning this episode, episode number two here on the We Got Your Six podcast. So I really appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you so much, Phil. It's definitely an honor for me to be here um, and to, to speak to our, our class and friends of the class. Um, and I want to take this opportunity to really thank you and everyone that was involved in creating this. We've got your six podcast to include a legacy funds, just a, a lot of outstanding people volunteering their time to to help us be connected and have some good conversations all for the the betterment of 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 us as a class so i'm very honored to be here and excited to to share some some stories with you this morning yeah no it's um you know human connection that's what we need more of in the world and you know obviously at west point there's a massive amount of that when you're there and when you're in service but sometimes we can lose it you know when we're out in the world and i never I wasn't a West Pointer, but I've seen the benefit of uh, having a community and, and um, human connection has been the solution to a lot of my problems. So yeah. definitely that's what we hope to do here okay. with this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you know, 1999 um, to now has been a while, but you know, and, and you're not in the army, you're not active duty, you're actually at the, the VA, right? You're doing some pretty important work over there with cybersecurity and I think protecting um, some of the platform there for benefits for veterans like yourself, right? Correct, yep. I, I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs in the Office of Information and Technology, currently under the, the Chief of Staff for uh, Freedom of Information Act, Records, Assessment and Compliance, and, and privacy really for the entire agency. So really focused on protecting not only veterans information, but also an information and, and uh, you know, personally identifiable information for VA employees. So pretty important role, uh, take it very seriously. And it really is an honor to work for an organization that works for people like us, right? Veterans, uh, friends and family of veterans. So it's probably one of the most rewarding jobs that I've ever had. And I'm very honored to work for the VA and to support our veterans. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, I mean, you know, you've done a, you've, you've had a couple different careers. I know that we're going to touch on uh, a couple of those and to hear you spoke, speak so well about being able to still continue to be of service is really great. But um, yeah, let's, you know, I mean, let's give a little bit of background. So you were at West Point. Did you come from a military family or how did you find yourself even filling out the application for West Point or thinking about the United States Army versus any other branch or just the military in general? Yeah, great, great question. I did come from a, a military family. My father was uh, a mechanic in the Army. He was stationed in Budingen, Germany, which is actually where I was uh, born and raised. Kind of the classic American soldier gets stationed overseas, meets German lady, and, you know, here we are. So that, that was my upbringing in Germany. Um, I never really had the desire to join the army myself. Uh, in fact, there was a, a period of time in high school where I was kind of anti, you know, organ, you know, uniform, such strict adherence. You know, I thought of it as being brainwashed and just going around like robots and told what to do, that type of thing. So it's kind of ironic how I how I got into the army, number one enlisted, and then transitioned to uh, West Point. Um, but really, you know, how I how I got there is and I'll give you a little bit more background into my my family, kind of who who I am or was um, again, grew up in Germany, kind of a stoic German family um, product of divorce, kind of a, a family 
situation that was uh, manipulative, controlling, where guilt was the name of the game. You got what you wanted from people by guilting them into things. And um, growing up into after we came to the States, you know, junior high, high school, I had a stepfather who was also psychologically abusive, really um, engaged in, in gaslighting. Um, he was a he was a pretty bad guy. So I learned right out of the gate, or you know, what shaped me right out of the gate was uh, really three things: be stoic, don't show any emotions, suck it up and drive on. Number two, you can't trust anyone, especially not those people close to you. And then number three, you know, distancing myself from bad stuff by just being busy, keep distract myself, be busy, busy, busy. And so what a great spot to be is the army where you're rewarded for being stoic, you know, suck it up and drive on. You're like, cool. You can set the example by not showing an emotion and being a, a quote unquote strong leader. So I was really drawn to the army initially to kind of escape. I felt like, Hey, I have these kind of ingrained traits and characteristics and the army is a great place for me to kind of use those as a strength or to have those be viewed as a strength. So that, that initially brought me to the army as a, an enlisted soldier. And then um, you know, I always chuckle when I tell the story, but it was a complete fluke that I applied to West Point. I was uh, kind of a jock in high school, had good, good grades, straight A student, student council, again, kind of a function of work hard, throw myself into everything else, but my, my home life. So I excelled at, at, at anything and everything that I could. So I had a pretty good quote unquote resume for a high school kid joining the army. And when my records were being reviewed at basic training for uh, military intelligence, I was there an extra couple of days for the security clearances and whatnot. Someone thought, Hey, this seems like a great candidate for West Point. So someone from basic training admin approached me and said, Hey, have you ever thought about going to West Point? And no, actually I had not. So this was kind of this opportunity that was lobbed into my lap. And I actually didn't find out I was accepted to the, the prep school until I was at the, my advanced individual training. But then I had my orders to go to Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. And I thought, well, that's pretty sexy. Hawaii, my first duty station. Maybe I'll just go do that and not do this West Point thing. And then the, the, the better of me thought, you know, this is really a, a pretty incredible opportunity. So I did make the decision to, to go to West Point via the, the prep school. So that's, that's how I ended up there. Yeah, no, that's um, that's an awesome story, but it makes sense, right? It makes sense, and you know what's funny is the more we have these conversations with each other, we start to find that there's so many so many similarities to the way that we either grew up, and a lot of it is not. I mean, look, well, you know what's funny is my dad was a mechanic, also. Oh, very cool. Um, you know, not in Germany, but just mm -hmm. uh, I don't I don't think that has anything to do with anything. It's just kind of like a, a funny little thing. But what does you know? Um, the idea of you need to be seen but not heard. And we get used to doing that and just pushing through things. So we don't speak up when things feel bad and we don't understand boundaries. We don't get that sort of message in our youth, right? And, and guilt and shame. I'm a product of a healthy amount of guilt and shame. If only you could be like that person, then we could be proud. So you need to do more in order to do this. And mm -hmm. all of my validation came externally. And that's how I learned to understand if I was doing well or not. Did I get good grades or not? Did I pass? Was I the captain or was I just on the team? Was I, how many tackles did I make? How many, if I can't tackle because they're all bigger than me, can I block? How many blocks did I make? What's the measurement to show that I'm good enough? And we just kind of push through that and excel at it. Like we learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, it was to avoid criticism, avoid the shame. I wanted to not feel that way because I got taught that that was on the other end. It sounds like you had something similar, uh, you know, in your youth, but it, it wasn't all bad. Like, it's not all bad, right? It's it, when it's too much of one way or the other, it's going to go pretty bad. But when you can learn to regulate that, you probably do some pretty great things. I mean, how was your experience once you're at West Point and uh, graduating? You know, what what was that experience like? You know, uh, West Point, I, I'll admit, was tough for me academically, you know, so much so much going on, so much pressure to be the, the cream of the crop and the best of the best and uh, to try to live up to the ideals that 
West Point espouses and then not not being comfortable in my own skin, not really having a good sense of who I am. Uh, not I was emotionally immature, so I, I didn't make a lot of um, what I would say strong connections. Might have looked like that on the outside. It's pretty good at being like the chameleon and, you know, sense of humor and hang out with people. But on the inside, I was I just kind of felt disconnected. So it was, I had a kind of a rough time at West Point personally, professionally. It was an amazing place for me to be because what because of what West Point stands for. You know, you're you're about to to lead the sons and daughters of America, so to speak, um, be in charge of their welfare. So it was a huge honor, and that again then brought some of that pressure too, pressure to perform, pressure to be the best. So once I you know I graduated from West Point, was commissioned into the military police corps. It was an honor to serve, and I I always thought what a what a knucklehead I was to ever consider just going to Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, when I was offered the opportunity to to go to West Point, and so I really I, you know bought into taking care of soldiers and um, doing the right thing for people and being a trying to be a good leader, and it, I loved it, and at the same time I never quite felt like I was okay. Something was always missing. I would set set goals for myself, whether it's a promotion or rocking a an exercise or setting the standard for a new training thing. And I'd have that little high of like, yeah, I got recognized, I got a coin, my soldiers seemed to love me. And then there always was this thing that was missing. And so um, I was always chasing something, thinking when I get to do this next accomplishment, that's going to be it. That's when I'm going to feel yeah. like that's going to be it. It's going to fix me. I'm, I'm going to feel great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to feel like enough. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But yeah. And it sounds like you did a pretty good job of moving the goalposts. Like you get to the thing. It's like, well, but that's not good enough because I found that that dopamine high seems to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. Like it was really great in the beginning. And then mm-hmm. over time it didn't last as long. So I had to come up with something else. And um, I don't know, like, it seems like we were the only ones coming up with that measurement list. No one else was saying you need to go do more. Like it was only between our ears. Like we had the entire conversation with ourselves. Very good point. Uh, you know, I, to your point, spent a lot of time in, in my head. It's the proverbial, the story I'm telling myself is, you know, I'm not, not good enough or people look at me a certain way. If I don't do X, Y, Z, always comparing and measuring to, to the outside, which mm-hmm. was especially, challenging being among so many incredible classmates. I mean, with classmates that are, they're doctors, they're commanding battalions, they're, you know, someone's going to be the first general guaranteed, someone's going to be the first female general. So we're, our class is just surrounded by these incredibly talented, gifted people. And at the end of the day, we're really pretty similar. Like we have the same struggles, the same challenges, but to be in that mindset of constantly comparing and not feeling enough and, and being in your head, that's what really, really was, was tough for me. And so yeah. I took a lot of opportunities to, to uh, job hop to kind of, um, I actually, when I was in the army, I had a, a, a back injury and dealt with some chronic pain. And I was in a spot in my career where I was just feeling like the fraud, like I'm not, I'm not really this person that people think I am. You know, why would someone want to follow me into battle, that type of thing? And I was struggling with chronic pain and not being able to run the PT test. So I felt like, okay, here's, I'm a failure. I can't even do PT. I'm struggling with making weight because I'm not doing PT. So when a doctor approached me and said, hey, we should really think about a medical board, I was all in because that was my way out. That was my way out of that situation and an opportunity to kind of start new, start a new job somewhere, reinvent myself. And this time, do it better. This time, be the the real me that I want to be, that I want people to see. And I was really in in that loop, just job hopping, taking on challenges to get that high. That, to your point, wasn't as as high the next time around. And um, that was my loop for a long time. I was the I have this very impressive resume of having done a whole bunch of different stuff. And the reason I did is I just wanted to always reinvent myself, new challenge. 
and I never got to, this is it. I'm, I'm fixed. I feel great. Life is great. And just never got to that point. Yeah. Did you find yourself doing the, the geographical cure that like, I'll be different over there. It'll be better over there. So you move from one place to the next. hundred percent. How many, how many different places did you move around to? I probably, I'm probably in a new job every year and a half, two years. And the new job was typically in a new state. So I've lived mm-hmm. everywhere from Washington state to Texas, to Idaho, New York, Kansas, Missouri, New Jersey. Uh, yeah. Right. Yep. How'd you do with those painkillers and how much of that was going on when you really started to get into the thick of like your, you know, it starts with the internal self-talk and the self-criticism, the the pity parties, the the feeling of uselessness and self-pity just kind of overwhelming. And, and that's where, at least that's where it started for me. Like, but how much of that was, was going on at this time when you were just continuing to do the next thing and the next thing or reinvent yourself, the geographic cure for that feeling on the inside? I just, I was pretty numb on the inside and I I had that awareness that, hey, something's missing, something's not right. I just didn't know how to have a conversation. Again, I was emotionally immature, was taught you don't talk about stuff that's wrong, your feelings, you figure out problems on your own. So I was very, always very bottled up and uh, I can say like emotionally I was in pain and I was exhausted. I would, you know, it'd be a struggle to get out of bed in the morning because it was like, okay, why am I even waking up? Like, what's the point? What's my purpose? I'm kind of exhausted from chasing these accomplishments that now all of a sudden don't mean as much anymore. And um, I didn't have meaningful connections, meaningful relationships, you know, kind of goes back to my my background. Um, So what it looked like for, for me is, to try to fill the void, I would like buy the expensive motorcycle that was shiny and more than I really could afford. Or I would, you know, I'd spend money on watches and shoes and gadgets that I didn't really need. Um, so that, that was were kind of my painkillers. I would uh, have lots of acquaintances, very few friends, you know, 800 friends on Facebook and maybe five phone numbers in my phone of people that I would actually talk to. And uh, yeah. I would... Um, when I show up to events, some that were mandatory, I, you know, show up, be the first to leave because I just wanted to get out of there. I didn't want to be in a room of people who might find out that I'm not, not that interesting. And, um, I don't have a lot to say and I don't want to really let people know about me. Um, so I wouldn't show up to like uh, class reunions, um, trial events. I'd always have some reason why I couldn't make it too busy. Something in life came up. I just was like so uncomfortable in my own skin and I was so afraid that people would find out that I'm really not all that and I have problems and I'm flawed and I'm weak. So that's that's what it looked like um, for me. Um, and that really all came to, to a head for me in in 2010. It, it, it really, it, it caught up and, you know, I'll get into my, my story next. I basically, again, it bounced from job to job not comfortable in my own skin, lots of shame and guilt. And I was a uh, police officer at the time. Uh, One of my recent job hops to go do something more exciting, give myself an adrenaline rush, do something meaningful, help other people. Uh, I'd switched to the night shift, so I wasn't, wasn't really sleeping as much. I was doing more drinking, partying with other police officers. I just ended a, a 10 year relationship and that was pretty messy. Uh, I was kind of couch surfing with friends because I didn't, we owned a house together and it was a, again, a volatile kind of situation. And I went to a, a get together one, one night drinking, uh, something upset me. And I had my, because I was a police officer, had my backup gun with me and I ended up shooting myself in in the chest right then and there um that that night at this get together at, at an apartment complex uh obviously i uh, was blessed to to survive um i missed my heart by an inch basically uh, collapsed my lung shattered a, a rib on the way out and spent uh, about two weeks in in the hospital recovering i really i woke up the next day in the hospital and i I really didn't know what had happened. It was something that was out of out of the blue. Uh, again, I was 
I was impaired with alcohol, had access to a gun, which probably is a whole other set of conversations or episodes in the future. And I didn't have any previous plans to kill myself, harm myself, but it, but it unfolded in such a way where it was like the, the perfect storm of events at that time. So I told myself that this, this was an accident. So fully, fully in denial. I'm not a suicidal person. I'm not crazy. I was fully convinced that I would go back to work, you know, heal up physically, go back to work. Uh, and that's, that's where I was at mentally, 100% denial. Uh, and that whole scenario actually caused me to pull into myself even more, withdraw even more. So my, uh, my ex had logged into my Facebook and posted, hey, oh my God, Christine shot herself or tried to kill herself or something like that. And so that was mortifying to me. And it, it, um, it was this odd phenomenon where people would reach out and say, hey, I hope you're okay, I'm here for you. And at the same time, I just wanted nothing to do with anyone because I was so embarrassed that people knew that this had happened to me. Again, I never uh, until you know, within the last couple of years thought of it as I did this to myself. It, it happened to me, it was an accident, it was unplanned, that type of thing. And so I really withdrew even more, became more stoic. Um, I disconnected from friends, never really talked about it. I always just thought of it as this was, this was an accident. Um, you know, I, was, I did spend some time in, a, in an inpatient mental facility a couple of days after I was released from the hospital. And I really spent time just trying to get out of there. I didn't fully acknowledge this is, this is what I did. This is what happened. I said what I needed to say to get out of there and just, I wanted to just get back to work. Again, I wanted to be busy. I didn't want to like sit still and focus and dig into the hard stuff. So my life after that was, was pretty tough. You know, I had people that were pretty upset with me. I had the, uh, the experience of seeing what a suicide attempt can do to friends, family, how they can react to it, how it can hurt people. It was really tough. And I just didn't even know how to process someone else's feelings, let alone my own. So again, it just fo forced me to even withdraw even more. I moved across the country, you know, moved from Idaho to Maine in my standard pattern of start over, reinvent myself, pretend, you know, nothing bad can touch me. And I had the, the good fortune of uh, meeting my wife, Andrea here. I really, you know, I continued with those same patterns until I met someone that I felt like I connected with that was worth the risk of, of being vulnerable. I remember a few weeks after we met thinking, I think I could spend the rest of my life with this person and I just can't, I'm too exhausted and I just can't keep up this like facade that I've been keeping up for decades. And I had kind of, I still was recovering physically from my, from my injury. And I, you know, made, I used words like I was shot. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Again, completely not acknowledging what, what I had done to myself. And I got to a point where I thought I can't, I have to be honest about this. I have to like say what happened because I want to spend the rest of my life with this person. And I need to just take, the risk of of sharing that and you know, I told her what really happened she was amazingly supportive and that really opened the door for me to start feeling connected to people um, it was worth taking that risk it had a, a good outcome in my case and it really opened the door for me to understand like talking about it is is the right thing to do acknowledging it processing it understanding where it came from and that was really the first step for me to, to being where I am today, sharing the story and hoping to, to help other people. Um, we actually had a conversation about this last night when I was, I was talking about prepping for the podcast. And she said, I really, I felt like you trusted me. I felt connected to you. And so to get that feedback from someone that I cared about was, was huge. So this is the first time that I really started to open up about that experience to someone other than uh, a, a therapist per se. Yeah. How'd you guys meet? Uh, 
I used to be embarrassed to to tell people I made up the story about oh, we met on the beach, blah blah blah, walking my dog. We really met on Match.com, and the brilliant thing is that I was Andrea's first and only date, so she swears the results are phenomenal. Um, but yeah, but that's how we met. Kicked it off, hit it off right away. It was a cool story, and and now we're at you know over ten years together, and it just keeps getting better and better. She's Match.com's like five star rating because it yeah. Worked. These results are not typical fine prints. Right. Yeah. Right. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I, I really appreciate you putting it out there for us, like I said. And, um, you know, the, the, the one thing that you mentioned before is um, where you were describing what loneliness feels like. I think a lot of people don't. I never knew what loneliness felt like because I was always around people, but I was always performing for those people. I was always pretending to be what I thought they needed me to be. Like I would make up whatever version of me I thought you needed me to be and then pretend to be that. So I would think up what I thought you thought of me. Exactly. And I never asked you what you thought of me. I came up with that on my own. So I would be in a room full of people, but still feel lonely. And it was uh, this, this weird fear that if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't like me anymore. Hmm? Totally relate to that, 100%. You know, and really it was because I didn't like me, but it was, I was, I didn't realize out of habit I was already going to find something wrong. Like no matter what I did, because I was so used to moving the goalposts, I would find a way that something was wrong with me or that I wasn't enough. I wasn't like that other person. Or when I get to that point, then I'll be good enough. But I just moved the goalposts even when I get to that point. And it was almost like I I didn't understand selfish and self-centeredness. I thought all I do is worry about what other people think. How could I be selfish? Mm -hmm. All I do is care about other people. Everything I do is because of other people. Like I'm constantly doing this for you, but I was doing it for their act for their acknowledgement of me. I want, I didn't care. I cared about what they thought of me. I didn't just care about other people. And I would also decide for you what you thought, right? I decided for you that you wouldn't like me based on what I didn't like about me without giving you the opportunity to determine for yourself what you did or did not like. And so things like dating became a nightmare. Right. And it's um, what, so we talked about, you know, I think with, with the show, we kind of want to bring out the stories of what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And we talked about what happened and in that event and even, even just the sort of minimizing that we do is like, Oh, well, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really mean that it was an accident, you know, and, and we justify it in many different ways. But, you know, you mentioned, yeah, obviously, there's a ton of physical therapy. Um, what other like what else was going on? What else helped you during that time to really kind of get out of yourself and really start talking about it, even with like a therapist or a network or a group of people that I think for me, that helped me that helped give me a vocabulary to just describe what's going on so I can connect with another person. Yeah, really. So I really have uh, four things that, that help me. And the first, first and foremost is uh, therapy. And um, I think of therapy like dating. You're, it's going to be trial and error. The first one, I guess this is a bad example. Andrew and I were the first, you know, perfect match. Uh, the first therapist might not be the one that, that you connect with, that you feel comfortable with, that challenges you enough. Uh, so I encourage people kind of shop around. Uh, find someone that that you feel like you can trust. So I had a couple different therapists uh, across the years. Um, the most recent one uh, over the last three years was the most impactful. Someone that specialized in working with first responders and veterans. So I had a good, um, obviously, good background in the culture, the the issues, the challenges we have, uh, PTSD, trauma response, that type of thing, and really challenged me to to get out of the mode of just wanting to um, be recognized for accomplishing stuff. Like, you know, I remember going to a session and I was like, okay, what's the homework? Let me get on it. If I can check these things off, we'll be good to go. And she's like, that's not how this works. We're not doing homework. You're going to, you're going to sit with this. And I was so annoyed. I was like, what is, I don't have time to just sit with stuff. Like, let's, let's get into it. And she really pushed me to, to look at myself, to own the, the, um, the suicide attempt for what it was and to understand how I got there. Um, so I can't recommend therapy enough. And again, it's trial and error, different modalities. Um, and it takes time for me. It took over a decade to, um, to get to a point where I could really unpack it and fully understand it and acknowledge it and, and move forward in a positive way. 
The second thing that helped me, a guy named Babe Kwasniak. You might have heard of him before. Yeah. Um, Babe shared his story with us a couple years ago. I think via Facebook or he had he'd done some podcast. And I remember listening to the podcast. I was just blown away because I thought of Babe as here's this you know, basketball coach, he's got it going on. He's winning state championship. He's inspiring kids. He's married to a intelligent, successful, beautiful doctor. He's got this family that he's inspiring. Like how in the world can that guy be depressed? How can that guy think about killing himself and he's talking about it? It just blew my mind. And that was the first inspiration I had to share my story outside of my family really just my wife because i thought you know i just made this connection with this guy who shared that he's not perfect he shared that he struggles with mental health and depression his wife still supports him his classmates and friends support him and and tell him how much he's helping others and so he babe really opened the door for me to be comfortable sharing the story and and hope that i can help someone else you know, I, it was so interesting to find out that, you know, Babe's a mere mortal, just like I am. I had this image of, of him on Facebook, and he had this whole other kind of thing going on inside of him that I never would have guessed. And a lot of the rest of us, you know, rest of our classmates have the same battles, the same struggles, and we see just the pretty stuff on Facebook and social media, and they don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing. Uh, but I really made it an awesome connection with babe when he shared that. And it again was another one of those connections with another person that I made. Like we, we really ultimately we need each other. I, I got over the fact that, or the, the notion I had that you can't trust people, especially those that are close to you. And um, I gave myself permission to be vulnerable, just like babe did. And I realized that you make more meaningful connections with people by opening up and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm not okay. And it's okay not to be okay. And I can help myself and help others by talking about it. Uh, really asking for help is, is courageous. It's, it's honor, it's integrity. It's all those words that we know very well as West Pointers, all those values that we espouse. Sounds familiar to us, right? But that's really what it is. It's, it's being courageous. It's setting the example and it's opening the door to have conversations about things that used to be uh, stigmas or or taboo. And we really can connect more with each other by being authentic and in what we share and who we share it with. And and the reality is not everyone deserves to to get our vulnerability and it's a risk to be vulnerable. And what helped me is understanding it's worth the risk. The way that I feel now, I wish I would have had the courage to acknowledge and ask for help and, and say, hey, I'm not okay. I don't want to talk about it. 10 years ago, 10 plus years ago. So therapy, someone else like Babe sharing his story um, and really just slowing down, like forgetting about what I need to accomplish to feel a sense of self-worth. So, uh, you know, tuning into myself, my own self-talk, I was amazed at how I talked to myself in my head. And you've heard, like, if, if you wouldn't talk to your best friend like that, why why are you talking to yourself like that? Like, oh, I can't believe that was, I did that. I was so dumb. Like, I'm such a, I'm so weak. Now, the stories in my head were kind of defining how I felt about myself. So understanding self-talk and how much it actually impacts you, not even physically, psychologically, physically, was huge. So I would... Uh, I tried breathing, breathing apps to kind of slow down. And it was hard. Honestly, I thought, I don't have time to sit here and breathe. Like, I do this automatically. Why do I have to? This is dumb. Why am I focusing on this? You know, yeah. same with meditation. I was like, I don't think I'm doing it right. I can't focus. It really took a while to be able to sit still and be and absorb and, and feel things. But it was so important. So I used a couple tools. Like, um, the Miracle Morning was a great, like, morning routine to to build some structure around self-reflection, gratitude, being in the moment. Um, I have this app, it's called Mantra, where you can program it to, to shoot you out some, you know, I'm, I'm awesome messages throughout the day. And again, the first time I did that, I was like, this is so 
not me, it's hokey, but it, you just have to, again, let yourself be vulnerable, go with it, be still, be quiet and tune into yourself. And that can be, can do so much for you. Yeah. And, um, self-help gurus like Brene Brown, who's a, a shame researcher. She's a, a research professor at the university of, of Houston. She's an author and podcast host and she specializes in, in shame, vulnerability, courage. Her material was huge for me. Uh, same with uh, Esther Perel, you know, really her um, work focuses on quality human connections. So really digging into that stuff, getting over being uncomfortable with learning more about that. Feelings, yeah. emotions, learning words other than happy, mad, glad, pissed off. Right. <laughs> You know, just changing my vocabulary to learn these emotion words or feeling words was a pretty big deal. Um, and then the fourth part is just increasing connectedness with other people. So putting myself out there by joining teams uh, like Team Rubicon, which is uh, founded by a veteran. There's a, a suicide story there with one of the founders being connected to people like me, veterans, um, people who've had struggles. There's team red, white, and blue. It's also veteran focused more on like physical fitness, but getting people, getting similar people together. Uh, and then just quality relationships, not quantity, but quality. Select people that surround yourself with people that accept you for who you are, flawed, imperfect, that you can have honest conversations with that deserve to be close to you and deserve your vulnerability. So those are really the, the four things that, that helped me get to where I am today. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, that's, so let's, let's recap the four. Therapy. Babe Kwasniak, but I'll say in generally other people sharing, being vulnerable, sharing their stories. Right. Yeah. Uh, then just like slowing down and tuning into myself. Let's call that mindfulness, right? Like a, a mindfulness yes. practice. Absolutely. Mindfulness. Uh, and then in increasing connectedness by, by being around people. Yeah, like a fellowship of actual, like, but true fellowship of human connections. Like, you know, like a lot of us, I knew a lot of people, but I didn't have a lot of friends. And I, and I still don't, right? I, I, the people that are in that inner circle, and these are people that know everything about me. I'm not withholding anything from them because I'm right. not in fear of what they think about me. And they right. reciprocate that. And we actually know each other more, like more specifically, like with my sobriety, I have some guys in my life that know me and the benefit to that is that they know when something's off. So if I start isolating or I pull back or I choose not to communicate it, they know they're like, that's not how you normally are. Or like what happened with that thing? Whereas, you know, other people who barely know me or it's a very cursory relationship, they would never think to ask who like, Oh, it's not my place. I got guys that are all up in my business mm -hmm. and they don't care. And I need them to be that way. And I'm that way with them and their wives. And we, and, and that, I find that that circle becomes smaller, but it's a more meaningful, more powerful circle. And to your point, you know, the mindfulness, the mind and the body is all made of the same thing. And uh, not realizing that, you know, even that struggle of, am I doing it right? Is part of the practice. Mm -hmm. Right. And I love Brene Brown and John Bradshaw and these people that write about shame. Uh, it, it, to your point, it, it gave me the vocabulary. And every time someone shares their story, I can see parts of, myself in that story, even if it was totally different, they may not have, you know, they don't look like me. They didn't live where I live. They didn't drink. And I did, they didn't, I, they're married and I'm not, but you know, some, the way that they felt I can relate to. And that feeling of, I don't know, just a feeling of permission to start talking about what's going on with me mm -hmm. and to share about having a similar experience is, is really what I think is going to be the biggest, I hope is the biggest benefit of this, this podcast. Cause that's what I found too. Right. Like someone is listening to you and understanding like, Oh, like I feel like that, that, you know, that must be what this is. Or like, we didn't even know, like, I didn't know that it was okay. I thought if I couldn't solve my own problems, it meant I wasn't good enough. So I had to go get better and solve my problem. Yeah. But if I could have, I would have, and I haven't. So, you know, and that's where, you know, the I am statements, understanding that I am is the most important statement we can make because that's how I identify myself and what I think is what I believe. So perception is reality. You know, looking at people on the internet, my perception is their reality, but that, 
that's my perception. That's not reality, right? Like percept, like, and understanding that. And then same, likewise with the words I'm using, if I'm, I mean, I was, so I thought I could self-deprecate myself in a better behavior for a very long time. So mm-hmm. I said, I was, I was as mean as I needed to be. And I, I would, I would call myself all kinds of things. I don't even want to build those synapses, right? Neurons that fire together, wire together. So I don't even want to go back down there, but you know, you ugly fat piece of shit, like get yourself in shape. You got to work out, you fucking this. And it's just like, and I would railroad myself mm-hmm. thinking that I would self-deprecate myself into better behavior. But all I did was start to really believe and reinforce those same ideas. And then I'm surrounded by what I think other people are saying about me. And then what I'm also saying about me. And it makes it very easy. You know, you can cause a lot of harm to something you hate. So I made sure that I hated myself to make it easier to cause harm to. And when I was planning to kill myself, it wasn't, I was doing something good. I was uh, relieving other people of the, the problem of having to deal with me. Mm-hmm. You know, your life is better without me here. And I'm doing this for you. It was always like, I'm doing this for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a real good way for me to justify what I was planning to do and what I thought about doing uh, all the cut. I, you know, I was a cutter. Um, and I, it was punishment. Like, yeah, you wouldn't, I wouldn't have to do this to you if you were better, but you're not. So here we are mm-hmm. and just practice. And this is how we're going to do it. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's so funny how, how deep in, and I could have passed a lie detector test if you asked me to describe myself and I would have told you what I thought. And it would have been, it was real and it was true. Just not, mm-hmm. it was real, but not true. Things can be real, but not true. That was something that I picked up. Um, right. It's very real to me. It just isn't true. Uh, I believe it because I repeatedly think that because beliefs are are repetitions of thought and I continue to think the things that I say. So I have to act my way into a better way of thinking. And that first action is speaking differently. And that's where the vocabulary came in for me. Absolutely. Um, And then then I can't emphasize enough the importance of not, not isolating yourself, like being, being around people. You know, I'm, I'm in the best place in my life that I've, I've ever been. I love it. And I have days still where I'm, I find myself, I'm in my head. I'm like, I'm not, something's off. I'm not sure what I'm feeling. And I know that's when I need to get out. I need to go hang out with friends. I need to go talk to people. I need to say to my wife, hey, I'm, can you help me sort through something. And help me understand what I'm feeling, feeling off. And having confidence that that's a, an open, honest conversation. And at the end of it, I, you know, I'm good to go. But just to be connected to people, and I never would have thought that. I was always like, I have to do this myself. I have to be strong. I don't need anyone. I don't want to be vulnerable, potentially get hurt. And it's it's just the opposite. You know, and, and the people that don't support you or that look at you funny when you're sharing things, you don't need those in your life. Like, even if they're family, you know, I hate to say it, but Surround yourself with people that let you be you and that, that make you better. Yeah. That's what healthy boundaries are. Like yeah. I didn't even understand what those were. I thought boundaries meant separating myself from other people, but it's no, it's, you know, boundaries are for us, right? If, if I can't, that's where I feel comfortable when I'm able to express what's going on with me. And if I can't do that around you, then I need boundaries. We can only spend with so much time around each other and in certain environments because otherwise it's going to affect me. Um, in in a negative way. Right. And, and yeah, to your point, like the human connection, it just continues to come back to that. And, and it's a, what I found is that this recovery, like this, this on the other side of it, like what it's like now, I thought I could win therapy or I, I would complete, you know, like I would get the certificate you've passed. You've been through the 12 step program. You've been through therapy. Here you go. Here's your degrees. And that's just not how it is. It's a, um, a program for living. And, an ability to recognize when something is off in us and then a new set of actions that we know we can take that work, right? When I'm feeling, cause I, I can put on that nice little comfy sweater of depression anytime I'm ready. Right. Or it just, it, it shows up, but I know what it looks like. I know what it sounds like. I know what it feels like. And I also how I now have different actions I can take. I can reach out to a person. I can, I have people in my life that can say, Hey, can we grab coffee or we can make plans with, and they're not flaky. They show up where they're supposed to be not out of obligation, but because they want to. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's just a different way to live. Uh, it's a freedom that I never thought. I mean, this was, must be what the happy people that smile on TV feel like, you know, all the things like, exactly. the, this is what they, you know, yeah, it's really what I was, yeah. it's what I was chasing all the time. Actually, if mm-hmm. I think about it, I'm being honest, like all those, 
chasing the next accolade or the next thing that's outside of me where the next, you know, attaboy from somebody, some stranger that really could care less. That's really what I was trying, I, that sense of wholeness and, and connectivity and, and meaningfulness that, uh, that I'm okay and you're okay with who I am, even though I have a long list of things that I think is wrong with me. You're not even thinking about those things. Yeah. I even um, was seeking approval from my therapist. Like, to your point, how do I win therapy? How do I impress this person? Look how good I'm doing. I'm, yeah, way to go. Yeah. And, and I finally had one that was like, we're not doing this in a, in a nice therapist way, you know, very grateful for her approach. Uh, just really pushed me, challenged me. And, and again, it's be being real with yourself, owning your, whatever that story is, whatever you're ashamed of, whatever is in your past, you know, the reality is we have friends, family that have like the quote unquote perfect upbringing and they still have challenges. They still have struggles. So whatever that is, finances, infidelity, substance misuse whatever that is own it understand how you got there be willing to ask for help and connect with people and i guarantee you you'll find people that have been there they're currently there you can support each other we're all much more similar than we're different we just have to be willing to take the risk to, to connect yeah yeah exactly i mean if it has a name it's been done before and, you know, I find the greatest joy in helping another person that is um, just sharing my experience, right? I mean, you know, to keep it, I got to give it away, right? Specifically, like with, with um, alcoholism, just sharing my, I mean, you know, and it's, there's nothing like just hearing another person share their story to just make me feel less alone, less connected. And I know how I felt the first couple of times I heard someone do that. So that's why I never close my mouth when it's time to share because I this might be, I might be the first example of, of recovery or some, you know, that someone heard that day, right? I could be the, the, the I could be the message they needed to hear that day. And if I don't do that, I'm missing out on the opportunity to help someone. I'm also, you know, someone's going to, someone's going to die because like, I didn't, I didn't want to speak up. Right. I could have been, could have been the voice they needed that day. So I don't want to miss that opportunity. Yeah. And, um, and then there's um, that nice side, benefit of feeling like I have nothing to hide. Like uh, this is open book. This is yeah. me. And it's such a relief. It's so much less work just to, to be you than to you know, build yeah. the walls and put on the show and the facade. It's exhausting. And it's so nice for me personally, not to feel exhausted. Yeah. The feeling of fulfillment and just, yeah. yeah content. Exactly. exactly. Like, this is who I am. I'm not pretending to be the version of me that I thought you needed me to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so, um, you know, before we, before we wrap up here, like, I guess, you know, if people were listening to your episode and they wanted to reach out to you or they had some more questions for you, some of the things that work for you, maybe they want to talk in private. How do they get in touch with you? What's the best, what's the best way to do that? you know, someone wants to reach out and talk to you one-on-one. Yeah, absolutely. Would love that. Um, I can happy to share my email address, phone number. Um, you know, I also, also want to encourage people to, to look at resources around them. I'm not sure that everyone is aware of the, um, the 988 suicide and crisis lifeline. It used to be a, a 10 digit number up until just, uh, I think July of last year. Uh, so 988 is kind of the 911 of, of mental health. And it also is, uh, gets you right to the veterans crisis line. So you dial nine, eight, eight, and then option number one is uh, specifically for veterans. Uh, and then there are other resources for, for people that aren't in crisis, but that may want to help or be in a position to help those that are. So there are things like uh, safe talk, assist, uh, living work, start. And, and I'm not sure if we can maybe drop links to those things in the podcast, but those are all, amazing resources to really help break down stigma, understand, help with the lingo, help to be direct with someone, you know, ask the question directly. Are you thinking of harming yourself, of killing yourself? That's, it's important to be direct, but not everyone's comfortable having that conversation or we're afraid that the answer is yes. And then we're like, Oh, now what do I do? Yeah. There's an awesome amount of resources out there. Um, and I'm super happy, happy to connect with people directly 
have conversations, share more. Um, again, having experienced what Babe sharing his story with me has done for me, I would love to pass that on and, and help others. Yeah. No, and it's so important to just get the person to acknowledge it too and to just say it. My experience has been the ones um, the ones talking about it are the ones you can help, the ones that, that aren't, you know, they're, they're not the ones that have done it. It's the ones that aren't saying it, the ones that are avoiding it, the ones that, are, that we just we end up losing. So it's like get them to, like, call them to the mat. That's been an important thing. I, I needed it. I needed someone to, what's going on? What are you trying to do? Like, you know, what happened? Say it. Once you acknowledge it, um, you know, it has a name. It's no longer scary. Um, yeah, that was my that, experience. Uh, there's, there are still a lot of misconceptions that if you ask someone that, it gives them the idea to yeah, act on suicidal ideations. But really, there are a lot of studies that show that asking someone that's at risk it actually um, opens the door to really understand what's going on and open the door to knowing how you can help that person. So there's yeah. a lot of info that contradicts that you're actually going to give someone the idea by asking. Yeah. The cat's out the bag at that point. It's like, all right, well, I guess I got to do something about this. You can't. Yeah. First time I said I'm an alcoholic. First time I said I tried to kill myself. It was like, all right, well, it's out there now. Because mm-hmm. I could always tell the story. I could always lie. I could always justify and say, well, I didn't really do that. I was talking about this. I'm like, no. Yeah. Like, you literally waited for everyone to leave the house and you set up you know, some twine so you can hang yourself. That's what you were going to do. Phil. Like that's mm-hmm. what was happening here. And, you know, once I admitted that, you know, acceptance is the answer. It's the first step to most things. I mean, like I had to admit that I was an alcoholic. I had to admit that I had problems. I had to admit that things were going on. And, um, and that's where it all started for me though. That was the beginning, not the end. It felt like the end. It was like, Oh, this it's come to this. I was like, no, you're just getting started. Like you have no idea how good it gets after this. I, I love it. That's the perfect way to, to summarize that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, anyway, thanks so much for being with us here, Chris. We'll link uh, all of those resources to the show. Um, you know, and everyone that's in the private community, I'm sure they have a way to get in touch with you if they want to just get some one-on-one. If maybe they don't feel comfortable talking to other people, kind of the way that you heard Babe, and you sure. know, he was the one. So. All right. Thank you for listening to the We Got Your Six podcast, where we are on a mission to end veteran suicide. If you are struggling with thoughts of hopelessness or suicide, please reach out to family, friends, a classmate, or call or text the number 988 for immediate help. We are here for you, and we want you to be here with us tomorrow. If you have a story to share on this podcast, please email us at admin at 99legacyfund.org. The We Got Your Six podcast is a production of the West Point Class of 1999 and the 99 Legacy Fund. The podcast is hosted by Philip Nathram and produced by Brendan Wallace, with technical production by Scott Bronikowski. If you would like to make a tax-deductible donation towards the 99 Legacy Fund's mission to support the survivors of our fallen, please visit www.99legacyfund.org to donate, with duty in mind.